We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. A second Norfolk Southern train derails in Ohio. Canada faces a sudden influx of immigrants, mostly passing through the United States. New York City Mayor Eric Adams create new programs for the mentally ill amid a homelessness crisis. And I interview retired Los Angeles Police Chief Charlie Beck about the famous kidnapping of two LAPD officers 60 years ago this week. An event that all Americans, and certainly all Angelinos, should know about. I'm Julie Hartman, and this is Timeless. Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, and welcome to the show. I hope that you all were able to catch yesterday's episode of Dennis and Julie because yesterday was a very special episode because it marked one year that we've been doing the show. I was supposed to bring in champagne, but honestly, I forgot to do that, but it's okay because Dennis doesn't drink anyway. But you know, in the future, you never know. You could see me bringing in some champs. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Julie R. Hartman, and be sure to like, comment, and subscribe to the show. So I mentioned that I'm interviewing a former LAPD chief, Charlie Beck, later today, and I was telling my producers before the show, I feel like these law enforcement individuals who I've been interviewing, whether it's Chief Beck or Tom Baker of the FBI, Kyle, Kyle Serafin, formerly of the FBI last week, Andrew Bustamante, formerly of the CIA, all of these people must feel very comfortable on my show because in part of my earpiece, which makes me look like a special agent. I probably shouldn't be <laughs> drawing any more attention to this earpiece, but I do have to adjust it every once in a while, and it does make me look particularly special agenty. Anyway, to the first news story of the day, my God, another Norfolk Southern train has derailed. This past one was on Saturday, again in Ohio. By the way, some people pronounce it Norfolk Southern. Other people pronounce it, and I have to be careful because I've been known to slip up on this word, nor, oh, I, I can't say it. I can't pronounce, Sean's cracking up. Basically, they say it without the L, and then it kind of comes out like a certain curse word. I'm not even saying this to be jokey. I want to make sure that I get the pronunciation of the company right. But I've heard it both ways. I think it's the way that I'm not saying it. But for the purposes of uh, cleanliness, let's just put it that way, I'm going to call it Norfolk Southern. So on Saturday, about 20 cars of this Norfolk Southern cargo train derailed near Springfield, Ohio. On March 4th, and this was the second derailment this month, this train, unlike the other train that derailed in East Palestine, did not have any passengers. And as the company spokesperson has come out and said repeatedly, there were also no hazardous materials aboard this train. 
Of course, we all know that on February 3rd, about 50 freight cars traveling from Illinois to Pennsylvania derailed. In East Palestine, they were carrying 20 hazardous materials. And since then, there has been 15,000 pounds of contaminated soil and 1.1 million gallons of contaminated water discovered in the town of East Palestine. Now, President Biden has yet to visit. By the way, is that true? (laughs) President Biden hasn't visited, has he? I don't believe he has. Okay, good. That is correct. President Biden has not yet visited the town of East Palestine. Former President Donald Trump did visit, and our Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, only recently visited after receiving a lot of pressure from both his party and, of course, the political right. Now, Norfolk Southern has committed more than $5.6 million to the town of East Palestine, including $3.4 million in direct assistance to the victims and to their families. This is just yet another example, this this train derailment this past Saturday, of so many transportation-related incidents that have come into our news reliably almost every week since the beginning of 2023. At the end of 2022, in December, a United flight, which was taking off from Maui, Hawaii, to San Francisco, California, got so low in the air that it actually got to about 775 feet above the Pacific Ocean. And that was not really heavily reported on, but only came out later, which indicates that Probably some of our transportation executives were trying to hide that. At Los Angeles International Airport, a bus and an American Airlines jet crashed into each other, which injured four people. There was a near collision between a Southwest flight and a FedEx plane at Austin's Bergstrom International Airport, where the FedEx flight was cleared to land as the Southwest flight was cleared to take off on the runway, missing each other by about 1,000 feet. There was also a near collision at JFK International Airport in New York when a Delta flight was taking off and an American Airlines went right in front of it. Luckily, the Delta pilot slammed on the brakes, avoiding a catastrophe. And as we all know, there was that disastrous FAA system shutdown in the early weeks of the year where the NTAM system, that's the Notice to Air Men system, which was renamed by Pete Buttigieg to the Notice to Air Mission system because it's more PC, that system failed apparently because of a corrupt file. So unfortunately, it seems likely if we keep going down the road that we're going down that we are going to see more and more of these transportation catastrophes in the upcoming months and weeks. Now, some people say, you know, it's not exactly uncommon for trains to derail in the United States. There are about 1,700 instances of that happening roughly annually. But the difference is that with those one one thousand seven hundred cases. Usually, they are pretty benign. There, are, there's a very low and so, in some years non-existent number of fatalities associated with those derailments. But that has totally changed in the wake of these most recent catastrophes. And you know, it's interesting because one of the other big stories this week in international news is that there are many uprisings in Greece 
in the wake of a train derailment that occurred in that country last week that killed 57 people. It was a head-on collision between a passenger train carrying 350 people and a freight train. Each of those trains were going between about 85 and 100 miles an hour. They collided in the city of Larissa in Greece on the main line that runs between Athens and the city of Thessaloniki. And so the uh, citizens of Greece are protesting against their government and also against the OSE, which is one of the main rail networks that was in charge of running this train, because both the government and the rail, rail network have said that this was caused by human error. But what citizens are saying is that they have noticed for a long time that there have been some faulty uh, circumstances and systems that may have led to this catastrophe. They cite a lack of proper technology, staff shortages, and poor maintenance. And so, you know, we look at these instances that happen in other countries and we think, oh, gosh, how horrible. That could never be us. But with all of these instances of transportation disaster, we should all not be so convinced that that will never be us. And again, I hope I'm wrong, but we will probably be seeing more and more of these instances in the near future. Now, moving on to international news, there is a huge migrant surge at the Canadian border. More than 40,000 migrants have crossed unlawfully into Canada in 2022, which is a staggering number given that since February of 2017, so in the past six years, a total of 81,000 people have crossed into uh, Canada unlawfully. So if half of those just occurred in the past one year, that shows that there is a major uptick. And even in the month of January, there is a huge spike of the, of the monthly crossings. In January, there was 5,000 people crossing the border into Canada. And what's important about this story is that most of these migrants are coming into Canada via the United States. Now, Canada shares 5,500 miles of border with the United States. And usually Canada was shielded from illegal immigration because of geography. Most people that were coming to uh, the to North America were coming mostly through our southern border with Mexico or in fewer instances, but still a significant number, number of instances through the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. But what's happening now is that migrants are coming into the United States and then going up north. And this is in large part because of new policies that the Canadian government has initiated where they have said that they want to accept 1.5 million newcomers into the country by 2025. And also, this country is known for being quite liberal with regard to immigration, again, because they've never really had an immigration problem. But they are starting to see that with this announcement, they're seeing an influx of illegal migrants. And in fact, many even left-leaning uh, parties in Canada have come out and condemned the country's increasingly lackadaisical immigration policy, with even one of the politicians saying that Roxham Road, which is one of the crossings uh, between the uh, border with the United States, he said Roxham Road is not an all-inclusive vacation package for migrants. Now, what happens at these borders, according to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, is that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrest 
and charge migrants with illegally crossing into the country. But then what happens effectually is that once these individuals are charged, they are released back into the country. And that is similar, almost identical to what happens here in the United States where people come across our southern border. Sometimes they are detained and charged, but when they are charged, then they are released. And this is contrary to Trump's uh, remain in Mexico policy, which he pursued during his administration. Of course, he got a lot of flack for it. But what happened is that as migrants were awaiting their uh, court cases pertaining to seeking asylum, they had to remain in Mexico while those cases were pending so that it would prevent them from being released and then escaping into the United States. Since President Biden has taken office, according to the Department of Homeland Security, five million illegal immigrants have crossed into our border. This isn't just Two years. By the way, none of them, also according to the DHS, have been tested for COVID. And it seems that they are going way up north towards Canada. Another thing that is happening that is causing this influx of migrants, in addition to Canada's uh, policy of wanting to welcome these newcomers and not having effective border control, is this faulty treaty between the United States and Canada that is called the Safe third country agreement. And it holds that asylum seekers from a third country, i.e. not Canada or the United States, have to remain in the country in which they file their papers. So if they file their papers seeking asylum in the United States and they try to go into Canada, according to this treaty, Canada is supposed to return them to the United States and vice versa. But again, in another example of ineffective uh, immigration policy, There's a loophole in this treaty where people aren't returned to the country in which they file. So this overall just reflects a breakdown in both countries' immigration system systems, excuse me, there has been a huge influx of migration in the wake of the pandemic as economic insecurity has proliferated. And President Biden is going to be visiting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Trudeau excuse me, of Canada later this month as both presidents are under fire and pressure to deal with their immigration problems. And we will see if they, in fact, decide to do something about it. And in our final story of the day, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City has announced policies to expand help to the mentally ill population in New York. There is a crisis in New York City pertaining to mental health. An estimated 100,000 adult New Yorkers suffer with severe mental illness, and the majority of them are homeless. Drug deaths have jumped 80% in New York in recent years, 80% from 2019 to 2021, which has spurred this mental health problem and this homelessness problem. And the city has announced some new goals of reducing overdoses and reducing mental health issues, and some of them are a bit questionable. The first one is that New York is deciding to open vending machines. You cannot make this up. Vending machines that dispense the drug overdose reverser naloxone. Is that how to pronounce it, Sean, correctly? (laughs) He's going, I don't know. Thank God we don't know. Naloxone, excuse me. I guess it's a good thing that we don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Can you believe that? New York City is trying to combat drug overdoses by giving people in vending machines a drug overdose reverser. 
I mean, do you really think that's the best way to go about reducing drug overdoses? How does that disincentivize people from buying or selling drugs if you're just going to provide a solution just in case you overdose? And another staggering example of quote-unquote solutions to help remedy this drug overdose and mental health crisis, Mayor Eric Adams is adding intensive mobile treatment teams. This is all with federal funding, taxpayer money, okay? These are called IMT, again, intensive mobile treatment teams, which help people on the streets in shelters and jails. This is a direct quote from the New York Times. They don't say how these intensive mobile teams are going to help people on the streets, in shelters, and in jails, but apparently they are going to serve 800 people. They include social workers and psychiatric professionals, again, this is a quote from the New York Times, that have, quote, a broad purview to offer clients help wherever and whenever they need it, whether that means helping them find housing, connecting them to benefits, or solving day-to-day problems. Wow, really specific there with how you are going to help this population. Again, just throwing money at the problem. No specific plan, no accountability. How are these people getting hired? To whom are they beholden to? It just, all of it is is absurd. Number three, they are also, this is the, the city of New York, expanding a program that sends medical professionals rather than police officers to respond to mental health 911 calls. This was one of the whole uh, big pushes during the defund the police movement. I don't need to tell you that. We all read the news. We all know that this is one of the things that they were advocating for. And in fact, this has been tried and tested, despite what the left likes to say, in all of the big cities across America, including Los Angeles, where I am filming, which defunded its police department by $50 million in 2020 and tried to enact these quote-unquote medical professional solutions to send medical professionals to 911 calls. But the problem is, with mental health 911 calls, you need armed police officers because most of the time, these individuals who are suffering from mental health issues are violent and pose, pose a threat to the people around them. So as much as we would love to live in a world where we can send mental, uh, mental health professionals to help people on the street, it just does not work in effect. And number four, this one is another uh, example of not being specific at all, seeming to throw money at the problem. M- Mayor Eric Adams is investing in clubhouses. They are building six new centers of community with federal funding for people with mental illnesses who suffer in isolation that connect them, this is a quote from the New York Times, with education and job opportunities and foster friendships. Not to sound cynical, but really a lot of this vague, uh, a lot of these vague so-called solutions, I think, are really guises for not doing anything, but pretending like they are doing something. Mayor Eric Adams has also proposed a plan which seems contradictory to some of these more softening proposals to forcibly remove people with severe mental illnesses off the streets and into hospitals. This is called the involuntary removal policy. So it seems like Mayor Eric Adams is going in two contradictory directions, one with force, one with sort of soft, vague solutions. And again, not to sound pessimistic, it seems unlikely that this will have any significant effect. 
Turning to our final topic of today, this week marks the 60th anniversary of an event once known by Americans and even depicted in a Hollywood movie, but that has since faded into historical oblivion. This is the Onion Field Incident. Especially since it occurred in Los Angeles, my hometown and the location of this studio, I feel an obligation to bring it to your attention. On March 9, 1963, Criminals Gregory Powell and Jeremy Smith were driving in Los Angeles after committing a string of robberies when they were stopped by two LAPD officers, Ian Campbell and Carl Hedinger, near the corner of Carlos Avenue and Gower Street in Hollywood. Officers Campbell and Hedinger, driving in an unmarked police car, were sent to patrol Hollywood in search of suspects who had committed crimes against gays. Powell and Smith made an illegal U-turn, causing them to be pulled over. When Officer Campbell walked up to the car, the suspect, Powell, pulled a gun on him and told his partner, Officer Hedinger, to hand over his gun, which he did. The two criminals then drove the officers to an onion field in Bakersfield, California. The kidnappers both believed that kidnapping in California meant an automatic death sentence and thus thought that it was necessary to kill both of the officers. In that onion field, Powell shot Officer Campbell four times in the head, while Officer Hedinger, though handcuffed, managed to escape into the darkness, running, tripping, and falling four miles to a farmhouse to report the crimes. Both Powell and Smith were convicted of murder and given death sentences, but Powell's subsequent appeals eventually led to the California State Supreme Court to declare California's death penalty unconstitutional. So instead, Powell was sentenced to life in prison. Officer Hedinger returned to the Los Angeles Police Department, where he was ostracized by fellow officers who blamed him for handing over his gun to the criminals. Hedinger resigned from the LAPD after a series of shoplifting incidents probably tied to his PTSD and actually moved to Bakersfield, miles away from the onion field where his partner died and started a gardening business. The event changed the training of the Los Angeles Police Department and for a time reminded Americans of something that we often forget, the great sacrifice of our men and women in uniform. I am honored to welcome retired Los Angeles Police Chief Charlie Beck to Timeless to discuss this event with me. Chief Beck served as the LAPD chief from 2009 to 2018 and then as the Chicago Police Department Superintendent from 2019 to 2020. He is also known for commanding and rehabilitating the Rampart Division after the LAPD's Rampart scandal in the 90s. Thank you so much for being here, Chief Beck, and welcome. Well, thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. Very great topic that you have. I'm so glad that you're bringing it forward. You know, the, the sacrifice that, uh, that cops make to do this job that they believe in uh, truly needs to be recognized. And I think that um, some of the issues that we have in policing today and police relationships with the public uh, can be addressed by the empathy that this kind of show uh, engenders. You know, I, I think empathy is... Uh, uh, key to uh, the police dealing with the public and to the public dealing with police uh, and the recognition of the of the difficulty of the job uh, helps that. That's absolutely right. And, you know, 
ever since 2020 with the the crusade against police and the defund the police movement, I've made a point of going uh, up to police officers whenever I see them on the street and just thanking them for their service. And as I'm sure you know very well, they are so grateful when they see someone coming up to them and thanking them because they so rarely get the praise and the gratitude that they deserve. And I and I told Chief Beck before this interview when, when we were talking that though I grew up in Los Angeles, I was raised here until I was 18, went to college for a little bit and then came back. I never knew the names Ian Campbell and Carl Hedinger. Well, and, and so you will um, you will address that with the, your uh, your viewing public today, right? So you'll yes. you'll make sure that they remember. And I highly recommend uh, the Onion Field movie and uh, and Jim uh, Joe Wamba's book, The Onion Field, uh, to anybody that's interesting. And I, I will also recommend that uh, people that are really interested go to the police department, Los Angeles Police Department's museum which is on York Boulevard in, uh, in the northeast area of Los Angeles, and see the Onion Field exhibit. There's a magnificent exhibit there that has many of the artifacts, uh, including some of the guns used and, and photos and clothing and things like that, that uh, were actual evidence uh, used in the trials. Oh, well, I, I never knew that. I will definitely go there in the upcoming weeks. So I, I have this book that you mentioned, uh, Joseph Wamba's The Onion Field Here, and I read it in two sittings. It was so uh, riveting, devastatingly riveting. So I just gave that introduction, w- which you heard. Is there anything that I missed or that you would like to fill in as far as the, the details of that, that date, March 9th, 1963? Well, you know, I mean, of course, it was a very different time. The, you know, the, the police department, I think, was a little more innocent back then as to the, the you know, the, the depth of danger that, that, uh, that sometimes they experienced. You know, you know my, my dad was a police officer, started in the 50s, uh, early 50s, and, uh, you know, was there when, when this happened. And, and, of course, I know all of his contemporaries that, that he um, – was on the job with and you know this is something that that stuck with them and and became you know one of the the major touchstones of uh lapd lore you know there every big organization has its things that are kind of its um uh, totems you know or there or, or as i said touchstones and and this this was one of them you know and it, and a lot of it was about being aware and and you know, trying to do an impossible job in the safest manner that is humanly possible. One of the things that uh, Joseph Wamba talks about in the book is that in the wake of, of this tragedy, the LAPD changed its training to impart to officers that no matter what, you never give up your gun. Because as I, as I mentioned in that introduction, what happened was when, when Hedinger and Campbell pulled over Powell and Smith, Powell uh, asked, uh, or I guess de- asked is a nice way to put it, demanded that Hedinger hand over his gun. And I believe that Officer Campbell echoed that and, and encouraged uh, Officer um, uh, Hedinger, or excuse me, am I getting them confused, to, um, yes, Officer Hedinger to hand over his gun. So, so my understanding is that the LAPD afterwards changed their policies to say even if you're partner is at risk of getting shot. You do not hand over your gun. Is that correct? That is correct. The, the, the department changes training 
Uh, even, you know, which I thought was a, was the wrong thing to do, uh, had, uh, had the surviving officer, uh, make a video that, uh, that was used in training, you know, and, and, um, address his mistakes and, and, and I, which I think was the wrong way to handle it. But, uh, I understand, um, uh, in, in that kind of time with, without the, all the psychiatrists that we have involved in our training now that where, how it could happen and, and things were done, you know, oftentimes in a much more, uh, abrupt manner, uh, back in the, in the sixties and fifties than they are now. Do you think that the, well, you, you sort of, um, hinted at this just now when you were talking about that video, which I didn't know about, but do you think that Carl Hedinger was treated fairly within the department, you know, not, not to give those who ostracized him a pass, but, you know, so many uh, officers feel such a sense of kinship with, with one another that they may have just been so overtaken with, with grief and sadness by the death of Ian Campbell that they blamed Carl Hedinger. But you you know the culture of, of police officers better than anyone. Do you think that that treatment was justified or do you think in those incidents you have to have uh, respect and empathy for the difficult moment that the officer was in? Well, again, different time, right. you know, same place, different time. Uh, you know, now in, in, in uh, current LAPD, there is a, a, a police uh, psychologist assigned to every division. Uh, you know, we are, we're much more in touch with, you know, the health of our employees, both the mental health and the physical health. You know, we, we, we see that as uh, one of the, the major jobs of the chief, you know, keeping his employees healthy, both mentally and physically. And I think, uh, well, I know in the 50s and 60s, you know, it was a, uh, a much different um, attitude about uh, how you dealt with stress. And, and normally, you know, I think stress was dealt with uh, uh, indirectly rather than the way we do now directly. Uh, you know, now if, if a officer is involved in a, a shooting or even a significant uh, incident uh, that is traumatic, we mandate that they go to the psychologist. We mandate a number of visits. Uh, if they're involved in an officer-involved shooting, you have a whole um, regimen of uh, visits that you have to go through uh, with a psychologist before you can be returned to duty. Um, back then, you know, you know, the, it was famous. You know, the, the the sergeant would show up, give you some, however many bullets you shot. Uh, you know, to reload your gun and then put you back out. And, and, and of course, you know, Hey, that, that sounds, uh, that sounds uh, very Western and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, harkens back to a different time, but what's the wrong way to handle it? You know, the folks are human beings. Um, you know, you have to have some, uh, as you say, empathy for what they've been through and, and try to, to bring them back to the, to a better place when they, before they go back to work. And, and that did not happen with Carl, obviously, you know, I, it, um, so I think that was very sad. So what happens is then you have a double tragedy, you know, uh, uh, Ian is killed, uh, and, uh, Carl, uh, his life is ruined, you know, and, and they're both just trying to do their job the best they could, you know? And, and I think that, that, um, you know, the, absent the kind of training that, that, that we have now, you know, I can see where, you know, uh, uh, Carl would make that decision, 
you know, and, and maybe now with the, with different training, different equipment, you know, body armor, things like that, would be much more or less likely that, a, that an officer would give up his gun or her gun. Um, but, you know, we don't entirely rule it out. I mean, there are, you know, we, judgment is key in policing and, and, you know, there are very few absolutes. So, you know, I can, I can certainly uh, envision at times when that might uh, be a possible avenue. You mentioned to me off the air that you had an encounter with Jeremy Smith, who was one of the criminals involved in the case. He was not the one who, who shot Ian Campbell, that was Gregory Powell. But nevertheless, uh, Jeremy Smith was sentenced for a few decades in prison and then was released believe in the late 80s or early 90s, but you can correct me on that. So would you like to share the the story that you have with him? Sure. Uh, of course, you know, I, I joined the Los Angeles Police Department in 1980, excuse me, 1975. So it was a decade after this had happened. But of course, we were very, we were all very aware of it. And I was a narcotics officer uh, in, in Hollywood. I worked Hollywood, not too far from actually uh, Carlos and Gower, uh, where this incident uh, occurred in '63, and uh, as part of uh, part of my duties, we were working the streets in in, uh, in Hollywood, and I came across uh, an individual that I later found out was Jimmy Lee Smith, uh, and I detained him and found him to be under the influence of heroin, and uh, arrested him for that. And by the time I got him back to the station, he had told me, "Hey, you know," he told me who he was, and and you know, what his, what his record was. And so that ended up being a parole violation and was one of the reasons he went back to prison. And it was total happenstance. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to uh, identify him uh, even if I, even if I'd been thinking about it, because, you know, to me, you know, he was, uh, he was associated with the movie, you know, and, and kind of like when I, unfortunately, when I think about, uh, uh, either any any of the people involved, Ian Campbell especially, you know, you don't you don't see their you don't see their faces. You see the actors, right? Which is uh, which is kind of sad in a way that that their their images have taken over the images of the of the of the folks in real life. You know, and I don't, I don't think many people think about that. But anyway, with Jimmy Lee Smith, uh, you know, it was total happenstance, and and uh, you know, he of course went back to prison and, uh, and, uh, later died. But, uh, actually, I think he died in County custody after he'd been released from his parole violation attached to, to my arrest. So, you know, that was my, that was my personal brush with it, uh, outside of my, my dad's dealing with it when, when he was uh, a detective in LA. Before we move on to other questions about the, the LAPD in your career, I'd like to ask how much is this event known today by the LAPD, or how much was it known during your tenure as chief from 2009 to 2018? Obviously, as, as we talked about a few minutes ago, the training changed in the wake of this incident, but I told you that I didn't know the names Ian Campbell and Carl Hedinger. Do LAPD officers know those names? Do they know Gregory Powell and Jeremy Smith? Are they sort of those two criminals infamous in LAPD history, or has the event sort of, as I said in the introduction, more broadly, faded into historical oblivion? 
Well, I certainly hope it has not faded into into oblivion. And we do things to, to stop that from happening. You know, the, the museum is one of those things. Right. Uh, again, I highly commend that to anybody that's interest, in, interested in this. Uh, go and see that exhibit. Uh, every year uh, we have a, a, a ceremony, uh, which uh, uh, a large majority of the department uh, attends, where we honor uh, our fallen uh, police officers that have been killed in the line of duty. Uh, Ian's uh, name is is read off, uh, you know, every year there, along with the other uh, well over 200 officers that have been killed in the line of duty. Um, so he's recognized there. If you, when you go to the police building uh, in downtown Los Angeles, uh, right behind the police building, there's a uh, wall of uh, remembrance, which has got every the name of every police officer killed in the line of duty on a bronze plaque and, uh, and uh, there for display. And we have uh, many of our activities there. And as you walk through the, uh, through the front doors of the uh, police building on your right is a replica of every badge of every officer killed in the line of duty. And so the, you know, we, we try to do as many things as possible to make sure that, that these people are, are these Heroes aren't forgotten, but sometimes the scope is fights against that. You know, they, in the, the time that I was a Los Angeles police officer, which went from '75 to uh, to 2019, uh, we had 58 officers killed in the line of duty, and I probably went to every funeral. And you know, even even as involved as I was, you know, recalling every name is tough. Is tough, you know, and. And I, so I think that uh, the more we can do, and I applaud you for, for helping with that, uh, to bring forward the sacrifice of, of the men and women uh, that do so much for Los Angeles, the, the better off we are. I had um, a uh, fundraising link in the month of December on the show after a November 16th incident in Whittier, California, which I'm sure you're aware about when uh, 75 recruits were jogging when a 22-year-old driver crossed over the lane of traffic and mowed over many of them, causing so many of them to lose their limbs. And, and you know, as you're saying, what's so sad is certainly this onion field incident is slash was very famous. But with each year, there are other tragedies that are just as egregious. So so as you say, there, there's a lot to keep track of, but but we cannot forget about each one of them. So I, I, I view it as a moral responsibility as, as an American to, to use my, my platform to, to tell people about uh, each of these incidents, especially with this disgusting, disgusting crusade against police that has permeated the country in recent years. Uh, were, you, were you shocked by that in 2020? I mean, I'm, I'm sure all, all of us were so, were so shocked, but were you shocked by the extent of it or, or during your time as an officer and then, then as a chief, did you see uh, anti-police sentiment growing or do you think that really just kind of burst onto the scene in 2020? Well, Julie, I think it, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the, the, the tragedies of getting old is that almost everything that happens you've lived through before, right? And this is what all three of my kids are police officers. Um, and so, you know, I have this conversation with them and, and their friends uh, all the time. And, I, and what I try to put forward is this, is that, yes, 
right now the relationship of the public and the police is very strained. You know, I think you have a lot of people that judge you uh, based on your occupation very unfairly. Uh, but it's not the first time this has happened. You know, during the end of the Vietnam War, uh, sentiment against police and military was uh, was even even more egregious than it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, as somebody that's, as somebody that's lived through both of them, and I think that um, that we have we recovered from that. And I use the example of the military all the time. Uh, you know, when I was a uh, when I was eighteen. Um, uh, returning service people were routinely spit on uh, in the airport and and called vile names, called child murderers, and 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 just things that are absolutely unmentionable. Uh, even though, you know, they were doing the job that that we we being Americans had sent them to do. You know, they didn't they didn't pick going to Vietnam. You know, very few did. Uh, many were forced to go to Vietnam. And when they were returned, they were vilified for their service. Uh, and so now in those same airports, you know, fast forward, you know, uh, a little over 50 years later, in those same airports, you know, a, a uniformed service person can't buy a meal. I hope they can't. I mean, I certainly, if, if you know, if I can do anything for them and as small as that would be to buy their meal, um, uh, I certainly do it. I know many, many other people do. Uh, and that's just a, that's just the difference in the ebb and flow of public opinion. Now, you know, is is our military better than better trained and better equipped than the the, the military that fought the the Vietnam War? Yeah, probably. But they come from the you know the same species, the same human race. They they have the same uh, goals, ambitions. You know, they have the same quality of character. You know, and so so I think and just to 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 put the most positive spin on what's going on now that we will get through this. And the way we get it through it is the way we got through it from the the sixties to the seventies, eighties, and the same way the military got through it. And then it's through the fact that, you know, we are good people at our core. Uh, We are trying to make the world better. And we, and, you know, if we do our jobs correctly, we do make the world better. And by, by continuing to do that, you know, we'll get through this. And, but, you know, I, I too was uh, saddened, shocked and saddened uh, by what happened, uh, what has happened. And, and, uh, but, I, but I do see it starting to turn. I do believe that. Chief Beck, what is your opinion of police unions? Because speaking of, of what happened in 2020, one of the things that I personally found to be shocking was how silent many police unions were publicly. Of course, there were exceptions. Larry Calderon in in Boston, Patrick Lynch in New York City. Those are two heads of of the police unions in those respective cities. But with the exception of those two, police unions, at least in my view, did not do a very good job sticking up for their members publicly. Do you agree with that statement? And, And if so, why do you think that was? Well, I think that, you know, I, I really uh, caution against broad brushing police unions. They're, they are very different from state to state, from coast to coast. You know, their role and their relationship um, uh, with uh, police management and, and, uh, and the organizations that they represent are very, very different. 
you know, in many states, uh, there are no police unions, you know, because they are, it's a right to work state. There's no unions. So, you know, yes, there, yes, there were failures, but I saw good success too. I think in, in LA, uh, both, uh, Los Angeles police protective league and, uh, and ALATS uh, on the sheriff's side, um, have been very supportive of their members, you know, um, but it is, I will say it's a tough balance for unions because, you know, because they not only have to worry about, you know, supporting their members in public, but they also have to be concerned about negotiating their members' contracts in private. And so, you know, you ask them, well, would you rather, you know, rattle the sabers in public and not, not do so well in private uh, at the negotiating table? or vice versa and sometimes they're forced with that you know faced with that decision so again it's just very complicated i know there were some failures uh but i also saw a lot of successes and um you know again uh unions are very very different i mean the the union when when i was a superintendent in chicago the relationship of the uh, chicago's uh, police union and their rank and file and their and the city vastly different than in LA. Mm-hmm. And so to, to to you know to to draw conclusions uh, based on one based on the other probably is not going to be valid. Fair enough and Chief Beck was was telling me before the show that the media <laughs> was also different for you between LA and Chicago. You said that that those in Chicago were a lot nicer. Than we are. I, I did think they were nicer, and and you know I apologize because I have a lot of very close friends in the media in Los Angeles, and that's not to say that they're not nice people too. <laughs> but as a general rule, uh, you know, I, when I went to Chicago, that my staff and uh, and the mayor's staff warned, oh, you know, be careful of the media. They're very, you know, they'll they they may be disingenuous with you. You know, they ask tough questions, and and I found Chicago's media to be just the opposite. You know especially as compared to L.A.'s meeting. It's the Midwestern charm, as we were saying. So, Yeah, I think that is a different thing. I, I You know, and then I, I, I will say that, and I think that uh, I heard you talking about that before I came on, about the defunding, um, uh, support for defunding in many major cities, especially, especially cities that uh, have, uh, quote-unquote, liberal mayors. But, but I will say that in Chicago, uh, that was never even considered, you know, uh, Mayor Lightfoot and the, there, uh, there are many people who are not fans, but I must tell you that uh, Mayor Lightfoot was always very strong that there won't be any defunding this police department. So again, you know, to painting with a broad brush is very dangerous. You don't get much detail. And, you know, and so I, I encourage folks to, before they make an opinion uh, about uh, a, a whole either a whole profession or a whole group of people uh, to look more closely. I didn't know that that was true, Chief Beck. My understanding was that Chicago was one of the cities that that defunded the police department, at least according to my research. But, of course, I'm going to be corrected. If you look at, uh, I know they had trouble staffing, just like all police departments do, and that really isn't right now a matter of money in many places, and Chicago being one of them. But uh, Mayor Leifer was very strong about that, that she wouldn't count as defunding. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the aldermen uh, didn't try, but uh, she was 
she was very strong about that. Well, my my opinion of of Mayor Lightfoot is that you know she she really leaves her her officers out in the line of fire with with uh, all of the crime that that is allowed to go on in the streets and seeming you know there was a there was an incident uh, well I think it was in 2021 when Ella French one of uh, one of the female Chicago police officers was killed by. Uh, just going up to a car and, and was shot. And I remember the image of uh, Mayor Lightfoot walking into the hospital uh, to to visit Ella French. I believe she was, she was on life support and all of the police officers turning their backs on her. So was there, was there animus, a lot of animus among, among the police officers on the ground towards Mayor Lightfoot? Because that, that's my understanding at least according to, to the things that I read, that she was very unpopular among officers. Well, you know, and, and that is what happened. Um, and I think that there was a, certainly during negotiation times and because of the, um, the uh, vitriol that was, that was put forward between her and the police union, uh, that was a fact. Uh, but uh, that doesn't change that, that when it came to funding, you know, she was a strong supporter. So, you know, again, as I said, you know, you, you have to look at everything in context. And, you know, and, and the more you know, the more able, the more correctly you'll be able to form an opinion about somebody. And and as I stated when I, when I uh, first started talking about uh, Mayor Lightfoot, yeah, many people for valid reasons, um, you know, didn't support her and don't support her. And, and you know, she lost the, lost the mayor's race because of that. But, you know, again, if you look, if you look, you know, the things that she did were, I found supportive oftentimes. Now, perfect partnership? No, you know, between the, the superintendent and, and the mayor in Chicago. Uh, I felt much more connected to, uh, to certainly one of my mayors uh, in LA than, than I ever would with, uh, in Chicago. And, and, and that's just a, you know, it's more more personality and and kind of um, um, leadership style based than than anything else. I think. Well, I, I think your point about nuance is important because, as as much as I support the police, police are not perfect, as as we all know. And and one of the the really egregious uh, examples of this was in the LAPD in the '90s with the Rampart scandal which I indicated in the introduction, um, was a division that you oversaw after the scandal and you were in charge of rehabilitating that division. So if you don't mind, I'd like for you to um, please tell us what specifically happened with that Rampart scandal. I know that there was some um, allegations that police officers were planting drugs uh, and and uh, doing other sort of nefarious things, specifically in, in minority communities. And what did you do to rehabilitate that division? So, you know, that's a, that is like an hour-long answer, but I'll try to make it as, as concise as I can. So Rampart is a small and geographic size division in the center of L.A., uh, Pico Union area, you know, MacArthur Park, uh, you know, in, in that area. It's, it's about nine square miles, uh, but it is the most densely populated uh, 
piece of real estate uh, uh, this side of uh, Manhattan. And so very packed support of first entry into into the United States for many immigrants. Um, And during the uh, 90s, um, their homicide rate was unbelievable uh, because of of, uh, some of the uh, things that have been done in Cuba to send um, uh, to send uh, immigrants over that had criminal histories, many of who landed in Rampart. Uh, the, the streets were ran with blood. You know, we had in in that ten square miles uh, in one year over 150 homicides. I mean, I, I can't I can't even tell you what that what 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 that would put a major city like L.A. or Chicago at uh, if it was extrapolated to cover the whole city. So. Overwhelmed, and I paint I paint that picture to tell you that the police officers in Rampart were overwhelmed, and supervision was overwhelmed, and they you know supervision was was cut back in in that division, and many officers, uh, especially in the specialized units, the gang unit in particular, uh, were were under supervised and were left to their own devices, uh, in a place that that um, you know were, was very difficult to work, and so. Uh, there was no matter, no matter one of the things you can talk to that you can take to the bank about cops is that is that they will try to find a way to to do their job no matter what obstacles are in their way and unfortunately the Rampart gang unit uh, decided that they were going to do their job um, or part of the gang unit and not all of them and I have to I have to stress that because some of them uh, that that lived through that time are my very close friends and had that you know had nothing to do with what was going on but but some of them decided they would take the law into their own hands and get uh, get gangsters off the street in any way possible and that that first step or those first steps you know led that led them down the path of uh, policing without the law and eventually that ended up in them planting drugs uh, uh, attempting to uh, to kill uh, an individual gang member, uh, shot him multiple times, uh, didn't die by grace of God, uh, and uh, uh, eventually ended up with them stealing, uh, excuse me, cocaine uh, out of evidence lockers and uh, and selling it. So, all of that to say that uh, we had officers prosecuted, went to prison. Uh, you know, it was an internal investigation uh, actually uh, uh, that I was part of. You know, and and uh, you know, we were we were able to to uh, to to do what I think was the right thing once once it came to light. Now, again, you know, this was the this was a small minority of uh, of the number of officers in the, in the division. Ramparts Ramparts a well staffed division now. Uh, several hundred officers, I think almost 300 now, and just a handful of them uh, went to prison, and, and and the rest of them, you know, I think are are uh, are good examples of, of what you want for your Los Angeles Police Department. But fast forward, you know, that was uh, during the trials and and during the all the administrative hearings uh, that that came from this, you know, the the division was very demoralized, right? And so there were a number of um, attempts to fix that and, 
And it, part of that demoralization uh, caused uh, some of the, the streets to be, particularly MacArthur Park, to be overrun by drug dealing and, and things that make uh, officers feel, you know, that they're not doing their job or can't do their job. And so uh, Bill Bratton uh, tasked me with, with going back to Rampart, a place that I uh, grew up as a police officer in as a young cop and uh, being their captain. And so, you know, I tried to, to, uh, to give them responsibility. You know, we, we, we told the chief that we didn't want specialized units in the division, that, that we would, uh, citywide units, that we would, Rampart officers would handle their own. And they did. They stepped up to the challenge and, and uh, delivered, you know, an absolutely clean MacArthur Park where we had concerts in the park and, and you know, uh, actually at a, a, a much safer and better grade than it, than it is today and uh, was, was seen as a success. And, you know, I, I still go back to Rampart and, and many, of the, many of the cops I work with are still there. They're some of my dear friends and, and people that I respect, uh, respect greatly because they're the kind of people that, that uh, take a problem, meet it head on, work hard to solve the problem and then stay to make sure it gets, make sure it stays solved. You know, and that's what that's what policing is all about. One of the most famous events in Los Angeles and, and certainly nationwide was was when O.J. Simpson was acquitted in, in 1995. And a lot of people in white America were shocked and astounded that the black jurors could disregard what was seen as as uh, such overwhelming evidence. Given what came out three years later with this Rampart scandal, you know, with with the officers planting evidence, does that make the jurors in the O.J. Simpson case, does it make their skepticism of Los Angeles police officers and their management of evidence a bit more understandable? Well, you know, I think that uh, that people should always be skeptical, you know, and that, uh, you know, part of our job as, as law enforcement is to prove their cases. Uh, and um, I think, you know, if you ask my opinion, that the uh, that burden was met in, in the O.J. Uh, Simpson matter. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the uh, jurors were, were um, schooled by very experienced lawyers who were, were uh, uh, very clever at their jobs and, and convinced to disregard what would be normally seen as overwhelming evidence. You know, the DNA evidence in that case is absolutely overwhelming. Yes. But I will say that, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, people pay for the mistakes of the, uh, the people in the present pay for the mistakes of the past. And uh, obviously there have been times uh, when police departments have not acted appropriately and, you know, not treated evidence correctly and, and manufactured evidence. But, but I have to say, you know, I mean, I've been a cop a very, very long time, worked with literally thousands of other cops, and that is not the norm. You know, that is, a matter of fact, you know, when, when I was chief, um, there was a number of times, not a, not a large number, but three or four times, when officers in the field would would see other officers uh, beginning to indulge in that kind of behavior and report it immediately. And the culture has, has shifted dramatically. You know, I, don't, I think that, that some of the things that were uh, seen as um, 
seen and not seen in the past uh, now are just absolutely uh, incomprehensible to the people that do the job. Mm-hmm. And because we've covered so many heavy subjects, I, I want to end on a little bit of a lighter note. Do you miss the Parker Center building? For for those who don't know, the, the Parker Center was the, the LAPD headquarters. It was this, this white building in Los Angeles, and it was torn down just a few years ago. And uh, it, it was, you know, in movies that, that showed Los Angeles. It was kind of a, a symbol of our city. Do you feel nostalgia for it? Do other officers feel nostalgia for it? Or they're like, no, that was an old, decrepit building. We're happy to say goodbye to that. Well, I, you know, while we may feel nostalgia for it, just like I feel nostalgia for, for old cars and old motorcycles, yeah, I, I, they're nostalgic, and, and I like to look at them. And, but do I want to drive one or ride one compared to a new car? No, not even close. You know, so, uh, uh, and I think you have to look at Parker Center the same way. Yeah, there were, there's memories there, but that the new police building is, is beautiful, it is symbolic of the relationship of, uh, of the police and the community and, and the city government. Um, you know, if uh, it, it is by a factor of a hundred, a better place to work than Parker Center. So, you know, like, like they say, nostalgia is great, but it doesn't uh, it don't keep you warm at night. And and uh, that that um, that that building was was well past its lifespan when it was destroyed. Chief Beck, thank you for your time. I, I really appreciated this discussion. I thought it was very honest. We really went there <laughs> with regard to several different subjects. You know, I said to Chief Beck beforehand, if there's anything that you feel uncomfortable with me asking, please let me know. And then he was like, are you kidding? I've, I've dealt with a lot worse <laughs> than you. A lot, a lot of curveballs being thrown at me. Um, and you certainly have throughout your career. Thank you for your service. Thank you very much for coming on to the program, and I hope to be able to interview you sometime soon. Well, Julie, take care, and, and to those that are watching, you know, uh, uh, say hi to one of the cops that you see on the street. Yes. You know, do what Julie says she does, and you know, I think that that you can be one of the things that uh, that that starts us in the right direction of, uh, of a community and police that, that see their jobs and and their futures tied together. That's right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And remember that each of our thoughts, choices, and actions shape who we are. So let's think clearly, choose wisely, and act with principle and determination. See you tomorrow. Take care.